Amen. Friends, would you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather here this morning in obedience to your word, to hear of the glorious gospel that you have proclaimed and that you have accomplished, we are trusting you that you will work in our hearts through your word and through what you have put in my heart by your spirit to say about your word. We trust that you will work to make us happy in you. We ask you to do this, Jesus. We, we long for you to do this. It is not a work that we can do. It is something that only your spirit working in us will do. And so we ask you now to bless the preaching of your word. For your glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen, friends. This morning is Catechism Sunday. As Jody was saying to me before church, is this Catechism Sunday? Yes, it is, indeed. It kind of snuck up on me, too. The end of July, uh, the end of July is not here. The end of June is here already. And we are in the New City Catechism again. Just to remind you, as we go about our journey through the Catechism, our goal is not to preach the Catechism. Our goal is to use the Catechism to guide us as we dig into God's Word and look at what does God's Word teach about who He is, what He has done, and who we are, and how we respond as His people to what He has done. The goal is to work through that in a systematic way. Rather than going in just one book, as we've been doing through Ecclesiastes, which is glorious and good, and the regular diet of God's people, we take a pause at the end of each month and are working systematically through these core truths of the Christian faith. It is a good and glorious thing. Part of that is that we are going to be starting to use these catechisms more in our corporate worship, which means you guys are going to have to respond more to these questions, which is different for us as Baptists. We're not used to call and response quite as much, right? But we're going to do that as a way to help our hearts engage in conversation with God and his word. Uh, Two months ago, we talked about this question, the how and why of God creating us, right? I'm going to read that question. And would you guys practice with me responding with the answer from the New City Catechism? Congregation, how and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. One of the things about the catechism is that it builds on itself. So today we are addressing the question, how can we glorify God? Because two months ago, When we talked about the catechism question number four, we saw that as people created by God, it is right that we live to his glory. So it is a natural and good question that we ask. How can we glorify God? Right? This is an important question for us to ask because I think we know as Christians, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that we ought to glorify God. If you've been in a church that is more traditional and uses catechesis, then you know the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? You've probably heard that somewhere. We know that we ought to glorify God, but the concept of glorifying God 
is kind of abstract for us. What on earth does it mean to glorify God? What is glorifying God? Sometimes we think that glorifying God is some kind of special religious duty that we do, maybe on Sundays when we gather, or maybe by doing things like going on missions trips, or forsaking everything we have and going overseas and living overseas and glorifying God in a foreign culture. And that certainly does. But that's not the limit and the extent. And that does not let the rest of us who are not overseas off the hook. Sometimes we might think that glorifying God looks like aestheticism, abstaining from the world's delights. If we just don't do X, Y, Z, then we glorify God. Obedience to God and avoiding sin, yes, is glorifying to God. But that's not the extent of it. That's not the full scope of it. It is more than that. It is more than mere abstaining. It is more than mere service. There's something else going on. We are able, as people created in the image of God, to actually glorify God in the mundane, regular, everyday life that we have. And it's incredible that we can do that. And it's only through Christ that we can do that. Today, as we explore this question number six, how can we glorify God? We're going to see how to do that. Would you respond to my question one more time? I won't make you do this most of the way through the service, but let's respond to this question for today. How can we glorify God, friends? We glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. We're going to walk through that and see from Scripture that this catechism question is a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches about how we glorify God. There's many ways to put it. The words aren't quite as important as the concepts that they represent. We're going to see from Scripture that this is a faithful teaching, and then we're going to hear it and hear why it matters. Before we do that, though, we need to start with a very foundational question. What does it mean to glorify God? What is meant by glorify? Because that's still really abstract. We kind of know what it means when we see it, but we may not be able to define it. I want to look at one text in particular, John 17, 4 to 5. This morning, because we're going through the catechism and we're going to be going through a lot of scripture, it's going to be up on the screen using the slides I'm going to highlight a couple scriptures where I want us to turn in our Bibles. So make sure you still bring your Bible with you on Catechism Sunday. We are people of the word and we want to be close to God's word, not hovering over it or uh, looking at it outside of context. But for the sake of time today, we're going to have them up on the slides. John 17 verses 4 to 5 says this. This is Jesus praying to the Father in the garden as he nears his death on the cross. He says, I glorified you. On earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What I want us to notice out of here is that glory, as a concept, is both intrinsic or internal, it's something that someone has, and ascribed, or something that is said or given to someone or said about them. Okay, We see that in what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's a glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Before Christ did any of his work on the cross, he was glorious. Intrinsic, internal to him glory. And yet, here he is praying to the Father, having obeyed the will of the Father, and going to death to accomplish our redemption. He prays and asks the Father, in light of these things, Father, glorify me. 
in your own presence. Glorify me with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Ascribe the glory that is right and due Christ in light of what he has done. So glory is both something that's internal and something that's external or given. There is only one who has intrinsic glory. And that is God himself. God as the God, creator, divine being is the only one that is intrinsically glorious. In other words, he doesn't need anybody else to make him glorious. He already is. Thomas Watson in his body of divinity calls glory the sparkling of the deity. It's his internal inherent excellence. His divine beauty that he has because he's God. God is the only one who is like that. And therefore, he is the only one then who bestows glory or who makes other things and other people glorious. God makes glorious other things and other people as an extension of his own glory. He imbues creation with his excellence and his beauty. He's created you and I in his image. And the glory that we possess because we're created in God's image is derivative from God, right? It's because God himself is glorious that we see glory in one another. It's because God himself is glorious that we see glory in nature when we look out at a sunset or when we look across at the Grand Canyon like we did a few weeks ago. It's because God is glorious and that glory comes from him. Jonathan Edwards, who is somewhat complex, talks a lot and thinks a lot about the glory of God. His writing is somewhat hard to understand, but I think it's worth us looking at it briefly because I think he puts this in a helpful way. Here's what he says in the end for which God created the world in which Edwards is trying to think, what does it mean that God created everything to glorify him? He says the things signified by that name, the glory of God, when spoken of as the supreme and ultimate end of all of God's works is the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. Meaning by his fullness, what has already been explained, or in other words, God's internal glory in a true and just exhibition. Or eternal existence of it. It is confessed that there is a degree of obscurity in these definitions. But perhaps an obscurity which is unavoidable. Through the imperfection of a language to express things of so sublime a nature. And therefore the thing may possibly be better understood by using a variety of expressions. By a particular consideration of it as it were by parts than by any short definition. That last bit, in other words, what Edwards is saying is that the glory of God is difficult to capture in human language because it is so much beyond our ability to capture. And yet we ought to try because God's word has given us a glimpse of his glory, particularly in Christ Jesus. What Edwards said is that God's glory is the internal excellence or greatness, right? His external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. God himself is glorious in himself, and yet, it's the emanation. Edwards like to use that word. That means shining forth. The glory of God is God's internal excellence, beauty, the fullness of his divine being, shining forth or emanating. It's glory that's displayed, and that we behold, and then the way we glorify God is by rightly responding to what we behold. As we see the glory of God, we see this glory and fullness. We see this excellence shining forth in all of the things God has made. We respond rightly to it. That's in essence what it means 
to glorify God. To glorify God is to respond rightly to the outward display of his internal glory and fullness. In other words, because God is who he is and has done what he's done, us glorifying him is responding rightly to that. That's the most umbrella definition of it. Our catechism question is summarizing that and expanding on that a little bit by saying one of the, some of the ways we do that are enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, obeying him, which we'll talk about. To glorify God is to respond rightly to the outward display of his eternal glory and fullness. It's like when we see something beautiful in nature and we stand in awe. That is the right response to beauty that we see in nature. It is an inappropriate response to deface that beauty, right? We respond rightly when we hear a catchy tune by singing along. It is inappropriate response to try to sing a different tune louder. Right? So we're trying to respond rightly to what we see and hear from God. When we glorify God, then we are living in accordance with reality. Because God himself is glorious and his glory is shining forth. It's not like we're creating it, not like we're adding anything to God. We are living in accordance with the reality of God's beauty and loveliness and holiness and worth. That's what we're doing when we glorify God. I want to remind us, before we look at these individual ways to glorify God, why should we glorify God? I want to remind us from Scripture a few things. One, we glorify God out of duty, because we are not our own. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify your God, God in your body. We are not our own because we were bought with the blood of Christ. We are not our own because God himself created us. So we ought to glorify God out of our duty. Not only out of our duty, though, but out of thankfulness. Jesus himself redeemed us. Psalm eighty-six, twelve to 13. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Why? For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. God has done that in Christ Jesus, and so we glorify him out of thanksgiving as a response. Also, we glorify God because it is the right response in and of itself to his inherent beauty and excellence. In Christ Jesus, he has shown us his glory. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what do we see? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, there is no one more beautiful, more excellent, more worthy of glory than Jesus Christ. We have seen in him the glory of God and we glorify God because it is the right response to what we see. So how do we do it? Thankfully, our catechism question only lists four ways because Thomas Watson in his Body of Divinity, which is a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, lists at least 17 ways we can glorify God. It's a little bit complex for my taste. I like Thomas Boston, who summarizes as we glorify God with our heart, with our lips, and with our life. It's another good way to think of it. All of these are trying to put glorifying God into some categories for us because the entire Bible is about rightly responding to the glory of God. The entire Bible is about glorifying God. Our entire aim in life is glorifying God. And so, to make it a smaller scope so that we can think about it 
and work on responding rightly in faith, we're given some categories. We glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. Let's take, first of all, enjoying God. We glorify God by enjoying him. Scripture is clear that one of God's aims is for us to learn to be glad in him, to delight in him, to take joy in him. In other words, to enjoy him. Listen to the testimony of scripture. Psalm 100, which we read for the call to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Not with grumpiness, with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Or Psalm 92, 1-4, to it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. We serve with gladness. We sing for joy because his works make us glad. We offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice. As Psalm 50 verse 23 says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. This is what it looks like to enjoy God. Not only that, but we find our delights in God himself. Psalm 37, 3 to 4, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If we are delighting in God, then our heart is desiring God and he is pleased to give us himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not only in the Lord, but we are given his beauty and excellency and all of his Nature is poured into his word. We have a God who speaks. And so we learn to enjoy this God who speaks by learning to delight in the words he speaks. Psalm 119 verses 14 to 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Turn with me to Psalm 16, verses 5 to 11. This is what it looks like to delight in the Lord this way, to enjoy God as we ought. Psalms, verse six, or chapter 16, excuse me. Psalm 16, verses 5 to 11. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, that is a God worth enjoying. Our enjoyment of that kind of God, which we have, who is the true and living God, leads to a satisfaction that says that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
A satisfaction that says, I have a beautiful inheritance in Christ Jesus. A satisfaction that dwells secure, confident in God. That's what it looks like to enjoy God. That kind of enjoyment of God is what glorifies Him. This does not preclude the reality of sorrow and suffering. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, a man who clearly enjoyed God this way. He calls himself and his fellow disciples sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As he lists a long list of suffering that he has endured for the sake of the name. He commands the Philippians in chapter 4 of Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Even as he's meditating on difficult circumstances. He's calling on them to respond rightly to God's goodness, even though their circumstances are hard and sorrowful. And filled with testing. He's calling on them to rejoice in the Lord. To enjoy God. So the question that confronts us out of this then. Is do you enjoy God as you ought? This is how we're supposed to respond rightly to the goodness of God. Do you? Do I? This one is probably one of the hardest For me, out of the four, enjoy God, love God, trust God, obey God. I wonder if it's the hardest for you too. Glorifying God to me would seem easier if it was just a duty to perform. But the testimony of scripture reveals to us that it is not just a duty to perform, but it is a disposition of the heart. That glorifying God is actually about what happens in your heart and in your emotions. Do you enjoy God as you ought? We'll think more about that in a little bit. Let's turn to the next part of the catechism. We glorify God not just by enjoying him, but by loving him. We glorify God by loving him. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Some of you are probably doing in my head, uh, in your head, what I'm doing in mine. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Actually, verse 4 and verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Clearly, the people of God are called to love God. Commanded even to love God. You might think, how can God command someone to love him? Sure, that's honoring him and glorifying him because it's obeying his commands. But how can he command you to love him? How can that be real and genuine love if it's commanded or if it's owed? I would commend to you briefly the example of marriage. And the example of marriage vows. We were at a wedding recently. And the bride and groom made vows to one another where they promised certain things, including to love one another. It's a love that is owed because of a vow, because of the nature of the relationship. And yet it is a love that is true and genuine. The owedness of it does not take away from the genuineness of the love. Just like the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul does not take away from the genuineness of the love of God's people for him. 
We glorify God by loving him as we ought. This is a stirring of our desires. Psalm 73 puts it this way. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We are commanded to love God. In other words, we are commanded to bring our desires into line with what is true about him, that he is incredibly lovely, that he is worthy of all our love and affection, that he is to be the center of all of our desires on this earth. One of the things that means is that we become no longer indifferent to how God is treated. Think of the example of Phinehas in the Old Testament in Numbers. God is rebuking his people for intermarrying and worshiping the pagan gods. And in the middle of that rebuke, one of the Israelites brings along a foreign woman and they start to copulate. And Phinehas is like, what on earth is going on? He loves the Lord his God and he sees this incredibly offensive act going on. And what does he do? He grabs a spear and rams it straight through both of them. And God said, that is good. Listen to this. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. One of the ways we love God is by being jealous for his glory, by being offended when his glory is offended and by being jealous to see his glory rightly seen among all the peoples. Love is not indifferent to glory. Not only that, but we love God when we learn to love what he loves. We love what the beloved loves. John 21, we see this when Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter after his resurrection. The word of God says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Right? A question. Do you love me? Are you going to glorify me the way I ought to be glorified? He said yes to him, or he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus, as the good shepherd, loves his sheep. And so he was calling those who love him to also love his sheep. To use another metaphor that the New Testament uses, when we love the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, we love what he loves, which is the bride, the church, God's people. We learn to love God and we glorify God by loving the people that he loves and by loving what he loves, which is to draw other people to himself. We learn to do that. Ultimately, love leads to worship. The worship, the kind that we see in the Song of Songs which is a Old Testament book about two lovers meant to help us understand the love between God and his people. 
It looks like this in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Friends, the question for us this morning is, do you love God as you ought? Do you love God in a way that is strong as death? Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Do you feel that in your bones? Do you live that way week in and week out? Or are you indifferent to God? I can tell you that more often than I would like, I am less like Song of Songs and more indifferent to God. My heart is cold many a time. I imagine that's true for you too. We do not love God as we ought. Maybe though, we can glorify Him through trusting Him. We glorify God by enjoying Him, loving Him, and trusting Him. Trusting Him. When we believe God in His promises, we are glorifying Him. We are proclaiming that He is trustworthy, just like Abraham did when God promised to give him offspring. Romans four eighteen to 21 In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. This is a promise given him by God. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. As Abraham believed the promises of God, trusting in them in faith, he brought glory to God who promises, right? He shows that God is trustworthy, that God keeps his promises by trusting in him. We do the same thing when we confess our sin, like we did in the worship service today. We trust That when God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, that that is actually a true promise. There's no way, if you don't believe that, that you can truly confess your sins, because your only hope is to hide from God, not come to him and confess. If you don't believe, he truly will forgive. But when you do, you not only vindicate that God is righteous and you are not, but you show that he is trustworthy to forgive sins. We trust God as well by suffering for the gospel. Later in John 21, as Jesus continues talking to Peter, he tells him about his impending death. And John records this in verse, 21, or in verse 19 of chapter 21. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter's death in suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel glorified God. Paul's suffering and eventual execution for the sake of the gospel glorified God. Why? Because it showed that they trusted that the promises of God were for them even beyond death, which includes resurrection, includes a glorious and eternal life with the Father, includes, as Paul says, a crown of righteousness for all those who have loved his appearing. 
It includes these precious and very great promises. And trusting that even unto death puts the stamp on that that says, yeah, that's true. We trust God by suffering for the gospel and we trust God by believing in the promise of reward. As Hebrews 11.6 says, we must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's how we please God. That's how we glorify God. We trust God, not only that, but in our present estate. When we believe that the place he has put us in is right and good because God is sovereign over everything. And if he has you here and not there, it's for your good and for his glory. We trust that in the midst of plenty and we trust that in the midst of want. We trust that whatever circumstances happen, God is being glorified because we love his glory. This is... excuse me, this is what Paul concluded. I'm going to skip that for now. I want to go to Philippians 4. This is how Paul responded to all of his circumstances. He learned through trusting God to be content in whatever providence God brought along his way. When he was in prison, writing from prison, this letter to the Philippians, and others were trying to proclaim the gospel to make him jealous and envious, He said, you know what, I I trust that God, it is good for me right now to be here in prison. And you're being glorified through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And I'm okay with that. He had learned that from Christ. Philippians 4, 11, 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, he says. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. For I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul can do all things trusting that whatever God brings is good. Because Christ Jesus is strengthening him. This was Paul. How do we measure up? Do you trust God as you ought? Do you look at your circumstances and say, this is God's good for me, even though I don't like it? Or do you look at your circumstances and say, I love the circumstances right now, but this is not ultimately what is best. I long to know and be close to God. Do you trust God as you ought? I imagine for many of us, the answer is no. We glorify God, though. We come to the last one by obeying his will, commands, and law. This is the one that we tend to like a little bit more. Because this is the one we can kind of do a little bit easier. Just give me a list, God, and I'll do what you want, and we'll call it good. That's often our response. But friends, that's not what this is talking about. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. For thousands of years, the people of God took this very literally and had in their doorpost these words. They had in their phylacteries that they wore these words to remind them of the words of God and the command to love the Lord, their God obedience to the law of God is good. God clearly wants us to obey his law. It shows that his law is righteous and holy and good. And yet 
Obeying his law as we ought is difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we say, well, maybe if I just do enough good works, and good works do glorify God. We see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we obey God, when we walk according to his ways, others see that and glorify God. That's how it's meant to work. Or in 1 Peter four ten to 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When you do this, it's in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because God himself is working in you. When we steward his grace at work in us, when we're fruitful in obedience to Christ, we glorify God. The problem is, we don't obey God as we ought, right? Do you obey God as you ought? I like this one because I feel like I can do it a little bit better. At least I can do something about it, maybe. But I cannot obey God as I ought. There are so many times when I choose, instead of obedience to God, to disobey God. If we can't, if the way we glorify God is by enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and obeying His will, commands, and law... And yet we can't. What do we do with that? So often we don't do these things. We don't glorify God as we ought. We don't enjoy him, love him, trust him, obey him. Because instead we treasure the glory of man. Right? It's like Jesus warned his disciples not to to perform righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Don't sound a trumpet when you give like the Pharisees do. We treasure our own glory. We think about ourself, as Paul writes to the Philippians, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. That's it. We don't glorify God as we ought. What can we do? I think at the heart of our problem, friends, is that we don't glorify God as we ought, not because God himself is not glorious, but because we truly struggle to know God. If we knew God as he is, we would not be able to help but glorify him. Because that's who God is. right? It's the right response to who God is. The problem is we so easily follow, instead of the one true and living God, we follow a caricature of God. The God we seek to follow is the God who says, you glorify me by enjoying me by trusting me by loving and obeying me we think of god primarily as angry distant a benevolent maybe dictator we think of god in ways like that or we think of god as kind of a a a a, a squishy grandfatherly type who who Wants us to enjoy, not not him, because he's kind of outdated, but wants us to go and enjoy life and do, do what you want. Doesn't care about obedience. Doesn't care about trusting him. We have our view of God shaped into a caricature of God by living in the world, a world that hates God and rejects God. And so we struggle to glorify God as we ought because we don't truly know him well. We don't have our view of him shaped. We need, week in and week out, our view of God shaped and formed by his word. 
And we need our view of God shaped and formed by worship, both public and private. In other words, with God's people together like this, and individually as we commune with God through word and through prayer. We need our view of God shaped by word and by worship. And it needs to be shaped into the image that he has given us, which is Christ Jesus. Right? He has shown us what he is like in Christ Jesus. The hope for us to rightly glorify God, even when we struggle to know him rightly, is Christ Jesus. This is a task that can only be done. We can only enjoy God rightly. We can only love God rightly. We can only trust in him. And we can only obey him through Christ at work in us. This is the reality. It is a task so all-encompassing. This is what affects not only our behavior, but our disposition of our heart. Christ glorified God. As we saw, as we saw in John, Christ glorified God. In the ways that we were supposed to do it. We see that through John 17. He says, I've glorified you, now glorify me, right? But not only did he do as we ought to have done and serves as our example, he purchased for us forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of this failure to glorify God as we ought. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In Christ, purchasing salvation for us. In God, blessing us with reconciliation and forgiveness. In Christ Jesus, God himself is glorified. Because how this works is our failure to enjoy God as we ought, to love God as we ought, to trust God as we ought, to obey God as we ought. Our failure means we need Jesus. Because of our failure, we need Jesus. And in needing Jesus and receiving Jesus and the grace he brings, God himself is glorified. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. As Thomas Watson puts it, God's glory is magnified, quote, in crowning those who deserve to be condemned. God is shown to be gracious and merciful In raising you and I from the dead when we don't deserve it. In showing mercy to us when we don't glorify him as we ought. But God is not interested in us just staying there, friends. Not only did Christ purchase forgiveness for sinners like us, but Christ sent his spirit to transform us so that in transforming us, he is glorified. In transforming us, we learn to enjoy him, love him, trust him, and obey his commands. This is what happened to Paul. Verses 15 to 17 of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In saving Paul, in transforming him from Paul the persecutor to Paul the pastor, Jesus Christ showed his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. He did this in a way that showed that, you know what, Jesus is gloriously patient. And Paul's life testified to that. And you're in my lives testify to that over and over and over. Jesus is gloriously patient. And when we respond to that patience with joy, we bring him glory. The grace of the gospel brings us to enjoy God, to love him, to trust him, and to obey him. Because as forgiven sinners, we've been forgiven much and we love much. Just like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil, we are overwhelmed with love for the God who has saved us. And the grace of the gospel enables us then to walk in enjoyment of God, to walk in loving God with all our being, and to walk in trusting Him with everything we have. And then, too, to walk in obedience to His will, commands, and law. We've been given new hearts and a new spirit, just like He promised His people long ago. Through Jesus Christ, God has shown us His glory and God himself has created the response in us that is required. Second Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's our only hope for glorifying God. And God himself does it. And all we have in response is thanks, thankfulness, hearts filled with gratitude for all God has done in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are aware of our own shortcomings and failure to glorify you as we ought. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not turn inward in despair as we look at these things, but turn outward in joy? Would you throw our failures against the contrast of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the hope that we have? And would they stand in such contrast that the hope that we have in Christ overwhelms them? So that we can respond just like Paul does in Romans 8, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that that we can then turn and walk in faith. Obedient to your commands. Loving you with all our soul. Trusting you as we ought. and, And enjoying renewed fellowship with you. Pray that you would help us do this by your spirit. Amen.